This episode contains spoilers for God of War 2018. What is up, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and in case you somehow missed the news, God of War Ragnarok was released just last week. I've been streaming my playthrough on my YouTube channel, and so far, I fucking love it. The combat, the characters, the clever reimagining of the Norse mythos, it's well on its way to dethroning its predecessor as my favorite game of all time. That being said, I am sort of missing one of my favorite characters from the last game, Balder, whose death triggered Fimblewinter and added fuel to the fire that is Kratos' conflict with the gods. Now, depending on how familiar you are with the mythos, you might be confused by the crass, maniacal, and violent portrayal of Balder that we see in God of War, because the myths he's in describe him as a kind, fair-loving god who was so pure that he literally radiated light. But while his personality and appearance are very different than his mythological counterpart, you'd probably be surprised to learn just how much the their lives have in common. That's why today I'm going to break down his real mythology in its entirety and point out every subtle similarity and major difference between the two portrayals, from his strained relationship with his mother to his tragic death at the hands of Loki. Chapter 1. Who is Baldur? So if we were talking Greek gods right now, I'd be starting this off with a breakdown of what Baldur was the god of, what his sacred symbols were, how people worshipped him, all those basic details. But the Norse gods functioned in a very different way than the Greek gods did or any other gods for that matter. Instead of presiding over a single domain and having a personality that reflected that, each of the gods was a complicated, multifaceted being who may have been associated with particular qualities, but didn't necessarily have sole dominion over them. They acted just like people, each with their own unique interests, strengths, and weaknesses. Only because of their elevated status, many of their personality traits were magnified. Basically take the best things about you and the worst things about you, now crank them both up to 10. That's how you'd be as a Norse god. And what's fascinating is that while they certainly appreciated sacrifices and celebrations being conducted in their honor, they didn't necessarily require their followers to worship them in that particular way. If you wanted to declare Odin your patron god and join a cult dedicated to praising him, you could, but all you really had to do was live your life with a recognition and appreciation for the roles they played in shaping the world and the events that happen on it. Anyway, when it comes to Baldur, according to our primary resources for Norse mythology, the Prose Edda by Snorri Sturluson and the Poetic Edda, he was a pretty special guy. If you've seen my episode about the Norse creation story, then you might remember the way the Prose Edda breaks down the Norse mythos is through a dialogue between Gangleri, who is King Gilfi in disguise, and Odin, who disguised himself as three kings named High, just as high, and third. Gangleri asks them about the creation of the world, about the Aesir gods, all that stuff, and it's from them that we learn about Baldur. They describe him as the second son of Odin by Frigg. They say he's the best of the Aesir and all things praise him. He was so beautiful and fair that he literally glowed, and he was so wise that when he made a judgment, no one disagreed with it. We also know that his wife is the goddess Nana. Although she only appears in the myth about his death, like her husband, she's associated with love, joy, and peace. Together, they had a son named Forseti. He took after his role model parents and is considered the god of justice and reconciliation. Now, while there aren't any records about how Baldur's most dedicated followers worshipped him, there is a 1300s book called Frithiof Saga, which takes place in the 8th century, and mentions both a cult and temple that were established in his honor. We do have to take this with a massive grain of salt, though, because Viking sagas like this one had roots in reality, but they were heavily embellished by the time they were written down. So the 
specific Colton temple that were mentioned may have never really existed, but the fact that they were mentioned at all indicates that others may have. Now those are the basics of Baldur, who is nothing but good and pure, but I hope you're not getting too attached to the guy because we're about to spend a lot of time talking about his death. Chapter 2, Baldur's Death like I said in the intro, the story that Baldur is known for the most is his death. In fact, it's brought up pretty much every time he's mentioned in the old texts. But if you want the entire story of how he's killed, why he's killed, and what happens after, you're gonna have to piece it together from multiple poems in the Poetic Edda and an excerpt from the end of the Gilfaginning. The good news is I already went ahead and did all that, so I'm gonna spend this section jumping back and forth between the Eddas so you can hear it in chronological order. Don't worry though, I'm gonna clearly label each section to avoid confusion and so those curious can look it up themselves. Chapter 2, Part 1, Baldur's Dreams So the poem that starts this whole thing off is Baldur's Dramar, or Baldur's Dreams, and it picks up when the Aesir get together to discuss, you guessed it, Baldur's recurring dreams. In these dreams, or should I say nightmares, he would see himself dead and the end of the world commencing soon after. And because in Norse culture dreams were prophetic, this was concerning to the other Aesir. The Allfather himself needed answers, so he rode his eight-legged steed Slepnir into the deepest parts of hell where he resurrected a wise Jotun woman who could help him. After lying about his identity, he asks the woman who is going to kill Baldur and she answers his blind brother Hod whose name is actually pronounced Hother if you're not butchering it like the American pig that I am. Next, he asks who will avenge his death and she answers that Odin will impregnate a princess named Rind with a son named Vali and he'll kill Hod only a day after he's born. Before Odin can gain any more information though, the wise woman realizes who he is and because Jotuns generally weren't fans of Odin, she refuses to help him anymore and returns to the land of the dead. Chapter 2, Part 2, The Gilfaginning so it's at this point that we go back to the prose Edda where we're treated to the vast majority of the rest of the story. It actually picks up at the same exact moment as the Baldur's dream poem, only instead of following what Odin does after the meeting, we follow Frigg. The goddess was horrified at the thought of losing her perfect son, so she went around the cosmos extracting promises from everything you can imagine that they will never hurt Baldur. Fire, water, iron, all kinds of metal, stones, the earth, trees, disease, beasts, birds, and all manners of creeping things agreed to her terms, but there was a plant that she overlooked. Now after returning from her journey, she told the Aesir that Baldur was officially safe from all harm, so they took it upon themselves to test this claim. They proceeded to throw stones, swing swords, shoot arrows, just about anything you can imagine to hurt Baldur, but their attacks would always miss or bounce right off. And you're gonna love this, the gods actually had so much fun throwing things at Baldur that it became a regular pastime for them. Everyone would partake in the fun except for two people, Loki and Hod. Now Loki is basically the equivalent of the emo cousin at the family reunion who takes anyone enjoying themselves as a personal insult, so he was going to find a way to ruin the god's good time. Disguising himself as an old woman, he struck up a conversation with Frigg and learned that the only thing she didn't get an oath from was a little shrub called mistletoe, and to this day, experts still don't know why. In the story, she claims it was too young to extract an oath from, but this is a religious text, so you'd think there would be some significance or symbolism to it. Anyway, immediately after this, Loki travels west of Valhalla, where the mistletoe grows, 
plucks some and molds it into either a dart or a spear. Then he returns to where the Aesir are gathered and approaches the blind Hod, who's bummed out that he can't partake in the activities because of his condition. Loki tells him not to worry, says he has just the thing, then hands him the dart and tees him up. Immediately after Hod threw the dart, he knew something was wrong though, because the Aesir, who loved Baldur unconditionally, all went completely silent at the exact same time. Then Hod learned what happened. The dart he threw pierced Baldur's heart and killed him instantly, leaving everyone in a state of shock. They were heartbroken and furious, but couldn't take their revenge on him while gathered in holy peace, so it had to wait for another time. Meanwhile, Frigg offered her love, favor, and fortune to anyone who would go to Helheim and ask its ruler, the goddess Hel, to let Baldur come back to the land of the living. This is when Ermod the Nimble is introduced. Depending on the translation, I've seen him called both Odin's boy and Odin Swain, which means lover. He volunteers to go to hell, knowing full well there's a chance he may never come back and rides Slepnir into the abyss. Now, while he's off doing that, the Aesir hold a funeral for Baldur that's attended by just about everyone from Valkyries to Frost Giants, and it's a pretty depressing affair. For one, when they brought out his corpse, his wife Nana either immediately died of sadness or threw herself on the funeral pyre. Then when they put his corpse on a ship called something I can't pronounce, they realized Baldur was the only one who could launch it. They had to recruit a giant woman to give it a decent push off, only she had to do it so violently that the whole thing burst into flames. Also Thor, who was taking the loss of his brother particularly hard, wanted to crush the giant woman's skull, but the gods convinced him not to, so instead he punted a dwarf onto the burning boat. Listen, I know Thor's the protector of Midgard and we owe him a lot, but I think we can all agree that was a dick move. What the f***? Weird. Anyway, another important detail that I'd probably get roasted for not mentioning is that Odin whispered something into Baldur's ear before his body was put on the pyre. And to this day, only the two of them know what that was. This interaction gets referenced every so often in other poems and myths. And once Odin even used it to stump his opponent during a wisdom contest, which was definitely not fair. Moving on, Ermod rode through the icy blackness of Helheim for nine days and nine nights before reaching the Hall of the Dead. He finds Baldur there sitting in the seat of honor, they hang out for a while, then he asks the goddess Hel if Baldur can come back to the Aesir. Now usually Hel doesn't like to cut deals, but Baldur was a special guy, so when she found out how sad everyone supposedly was about his death, she told Ermod that if he could get everyone to cry for him, she'd let him go, but if not, he'd be stuck there forever. This was no easy task, but the Aesir were up for the challenge. They immediately split up and traveled across the cosmos to get the word of everything that it cried for Baldur. Men, beasts, the earth, stones, trees, and all metals. They were this close to getting it done, but a giant woman named Thok, who many think was Loki in disguise, refused to cry, so they were shit out of luck. Baldur was dead, and they wouldn't ever see him again. Chapter 2, Part 3, Loki's Wrangling now to those wondering if the Aesir ever found out about Loki's role in Baldur's murder and if they got revenge, I'm happy to report that yes they did, and yes they did. Before we get to that though, there's a poem called Locusena, meaning Loki's wrangling, that you're gonna wanna hear. To put it simply, Loki attends dinner with the gods, gets plastered, kills one of their serving boys, then goes on to exchange insults with everyone in attendance, who, lucky for him, is not Thor. This trading of insults was actually pretty common in Norse culture and is called 
flighting. You can think of it as a rap battle for Vikings. Some of the highlights from this exchange entail Loki calling Bragi a coward, saying Frey is a slut, and telling Tyr that he could have had his wife if he wanted. Then at some point, Frigg steps in and says this. You know, if I had a son like Baldur sitting here with me in Aegir's Hall in the presence of these gods, I declare you would never come out alive you'd be killed shortly. So basically telling him if Baldur was here, you'd be dead. But as you no doubt expect, Loki goes for the jugular with his response. You must want me to recount even more of my mischief, Frigg. After all, I'm the one who made it so that Baldur will never ride home again. In other words, oh, you mean the dead son who I killed? Yeah, Shamie's not here to kick my ass. Now that's the extent of Baldur's inclusion in this one, but I find it interesting that Frigg said he would have killed Loki had he been at that dinner, because the Baldur I described earlier was not a violent deity. Remember what I said in the intro though, the Baldur that we know today, the one that we're learning about, has undeniably been influenced by Christianity, and Snorri may have been trying to harmonize him with Christ himself. With that in mind, this poem was not written by Snorri and is older than the prose Edda by an estimated 250 years at least. Which means that in this context, Frigg was probably referring to the traditional Baldur who was a fierce warrior. In fact, his name can actually be translated to mean brave or defiant lord, which is more fitting for the violent version. In sidebar, I fucking love how beautifully they blended these variants together in God of War. You get to see this psychotic warrior god who's closer to what you'd expect the Vikings to worship, but you're also exposed to his mother's perspective who sees him as her beautiful, perfect baby, like how Snorri describes him. In the way they took Frigg's gift of him not being able to feel pain and turned it into a curse where he couldn't feel anything and how that drove him to insanity? Just amazing. I'd hope that you, of everyone I faced, would finally make me feel something, but you can't. Don't worry, that's not the end of Baldur. Chapter 2, Part 4 The Gilfaginning. Again. Back to the Gilfaginning, Loki realized that by killing Baldur and insulting every one of the Aesir gods, he was due some bad karma. So he tried to hide from his fate and built a little cabin in the Midgard Mountains that had doors on all four sides so he could see his enemies coming from all directions and escape. This wasn't enough to protect him though. He was eventually caught by Thor, then he and the rest of the Aesir took Loki and his family deep into a cave where they would all be punished. They transformed his son Vali into a wolf and made him tear apart his brother Narfi. Then they used Narfi's intestines to bind Loki to three big rocks. Then the Jotun god Iskadi hung a serpent just above him so its venom would drip onto his face. Loki's wife Sigyn was forced to stand by him and hold a bowl to catch the venom. It would give Loki some peace, but every time she had to dump it out, more venom would spill on him. And it was in these binds Loki was cursed to stay until Ragnarok. What, did you think the Greek gods had a monopoly on psychotic torture methods? Chapter 2, Part 5 The Witch's Prophecy so the last poem that mentions Baldur's death, Valuspa, is actually the first poem in the Poetic Edda. The reason I didn't mention it until now is it spoils a twist ending. Valuspa follows Odin as he attempts to retrieve some knowledge from a wise woman he resurrected from the grave, similar to the one in the Baldur's Dream poem I covered earlier, maybe even the same one. You could pretty much think of this as the Poetic Edda's equivalent to the Gilfaginning chapter of the Prose Edda. To prove her knowledge, the woman breaks down past events like the creation of the earth, the origin of dwarves, the first man and woman. Then she recalls some of Odin's secrets and the details of his quests for wisdom. And finally, she discusses the destruction of the gods in the final battle known as Ragnarok. 
Somewhere during this spiel, she references the death of Baldur at the hands of Loki, but towards the end is when the other shoe drops. After Ragnarok, Baldur will come back. She says he, alongside his brother Hod, will return together with Baldur having forgiven him, which may be symbolic for a new age of peace. But don't get too excited, Solo fam, because the Vikings may not have really believed in this epilogue. Once again, it's possible these ideas were worked in by a Norse poet who was influenced by Christianity and may have incorporated this very theological feeling resurrection story as his way of showing that the Norse religion predicted the arrival of a new god and the transition of power. There's no way of knowing for sure, but from what I've gathered in my research, the Vikings don't come across as people who would actually believe this. I think they'd prefer the world story to end after a massive war between the gods and the forces of hell, rather than continue on to this new age of peace, bliss, and rounded edges that's described. I'm definitely no expert, but that's my belief. Chapter 3. A Different Death so at this point, there may be a few of you wondering when I'm going to talk about the warrior Baldur that's supposedly closer to how the Vikings saw him, and I'm happy to say that time has finally come. The following story, written by Saxo Grammaticus over a hundred years before the Prose Edda, tells a slightly more rationalized tale of Baldur's death. In this telling, he's a great warrior named Baldaris who's fallen in love with Nana, a princess who, to put it simply, isn't interested. Instead, she marries her foster brother Hothris, the equivalent of Hod or Hother, which leads Baldaris, Odin, and Thor to go to war against his armies. And you might be surprised to hear this, but the gods actually lose their first few battles. Eventually, Baldaris starts stacking Ws, but the whole ordeal takes such a toll on him that he gets progressively weaker as time goes on. One night, Hothris runs into Baldaris, and it's just the two of them on the country road, so they decide to settle the matter like gentlemen and 1v1 each other on Rust. It turns out Hothris was a skilled fighter though, and to Baldaris' surprise, he had come into possession of the one weapon that could hurt him, a sword named Mistletoe. Between his superior skills in weaponry and Baldaris' weakened state, Hothris made short work of the demigod who succumbs to his wounds three days later. But don't worry, boys and girls, just like in the Prozetta, Odin gets his revenge. After deceiving a princess named Rhine into having sex with him, she gives birth to a son named Bo, the rationalized equivalent of Vali. He wages war against Hothris and wins, but unlike Vali, is killed in the process. So what does all this have to do with everything we've been talking about today? I'll be honest, I'm not totally sure, but it's gotta be connected somehow. Is it possible it's a more accurate version of Baldur's death according to the Vikings? Maybe, then again, maybe not, because it's not the only rationalized version out there. Here's the deal, at the end of the day, even the experts are puzzled by this shit. So if you were hoping to get answers from a YouTuber with no formal education on the subject, you're gonna be sorely disappointed. That being said, since it's not the only variant of Baldur's death that's been found, maybe we can talk more about that and the others in a future episode. In the meantime though, what we covered today is just about everything we've got on the role of Baldur in Norse mythology. If you don't know, now you know. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo and don't forget, John shot first.